Let's turn to Galatians 2, 17 through 21. Here's how we're going to get started in this text. My favorite show is a show called 24. The show is built around one long 24-hour day of full-throttle adrenaline. Each, each segment of the show takes one hour in that 24-hour day and is building. And it's literally full-throttle adrenaline. And I, have, I want to apologize to many of you because I know I've, I've caused many of you to become 24 addicts. And this is the last season of the show. Forever. It's over. So I'm thinking of starting a support 24 group this summer for many of us to recover to figure out what life is like post-24. The main character is a super agent of the nation's top counterintelligence unit, CTU. His name is Jack Bauer. Jack Bauer, how do you describe him? Uh, I describe him like this. Jack is like... He lives life like he's already dead. He lives his life like he has nothing to lose. In season two, there was this encounter that he has face-to-face finally with this, this dear friend who had been loyal, quote, to him and ended up being a double agent through the whole season. And you didn't know it. And now he's finally face-to-face with this ultimate betrayal of this double agent who also, in the last episode, sorry if you're planning on running these, in season one, takes the life of his wife. So there's a lot of stuff here, right? They're face-to-face. The double agent has the gun. There's harsh, brutal words going back and forth at each other, right? And then right in the middle of it, Jack turns around and starts walking away. Now, my wife and I are seeing this for the first time, and we're looking at it like, you've got to be kidding me. What are you doing? And the double agent was dumbfounded too because the double agent goes, Jack, stop or I'll shoot. And as while Jack's walking away, he says, go ahead. I'm already dead. Ooh. Now that's a good line. What would it be like if you were already dead? I mean, right now, right here, very much alive, sitting in your seat, but you are already dead while you're already alive. I mean, would this be a good thing or a bad thing? What would this mean to you if you were already dead while you're already alive? What would this mean for you? How would it change your life? How would it change the way your inner person, what Paul would call the innermost person of who you are? How would it affect you there? How would it affect your relationships? How would it affect the way you move in life if you knew that you were already dead? Our passage today makes a very stunning claim concerning the core identity of every Christian, the cosmic status of every Christian. Here it is. You're born dead. And it's a good thing. So please stand for the hearing of God's word. Let's look at 2, 15, actually 17 down to 21. But, this is a contrast, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down... 
I proved myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ has died for no purpose. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. We thank you that it's your word that actually penetrates uh, not only uh, our heart, but that the word made flesh, penetrated, and went through the flaming sword back into the garden, back into paradise bringing all your people with you. So Jesus, we praise you that you are the word of God and that word that was made flesh. And this inscripturated word that we have right now reveals you. It's all about you. So, O Lord, would you show up on the page? And as you show up, Holy Spirit, shine the light of Christ into our hearts. Replace the things that we hope and trust in that are a cosmic disappointment and bring cosmic disillusionment. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, where are we? We are in the middle of a three-part series zeroing in on this passage. This is our last one. Uh, in Galatians, here's our placement. Galatians 11. Look at your text. You got your Bible. You're going to have to get out of your bulletin. Look at your Bible, 11 through 14. This is where we saw and found a big mess. This is where we saw racism, superiority, abuse of others, and an apostolic brawl that broke out over What's real Christianity? Is real Christianity a grace salvation or is real Christianity an achievement salvation? What is it? And this apostolic brawl breaks out because of this Jerusalem follow-up team that was going through the Galatian churches that, that Paul had ministered to and was bringing in this false gospel, this substitute savior, right? So Paul, in 11 through 14 that message has worked itself out into the behavior, and Paul punches Peter with this. Your mistreatment of others is arising out of a messed up message, Paul. Look at verse 14, just so we know what's going on. But when he saw, when Paul saw that their conduct was not in step, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I posed them to their face, right? Okay, what Peter, what Paul is saying, Peter If real Christianity is everyone is saved by grace alone, then how can you act superior as if you're saved by your religious performance or your religious preferences or by your race? Does salvation, Peter, come by race, come by religious preferences and religious performance, or does it come by grace alone? That was his point. Now, so then Paul moves right to the message that was being messed up. 
by the behavior that was being seen in 11 through 14. So he goes to the heart of the gospel. And that's when we go to verses 15 through 16. And in these two verses, literally one verse, the whole cosmos is packed into one verse in verse 16. The whole book of Galatians is writ small in that one verse. And here we learn there are two great ways to save yourself. Two paths to try to build your life around. Two ways that you and I can seek to justify our existence. Seek to find the love and acceptance. Cosmic blessings. There are only two ways. And in that verse, it's unpacked. You've got works of the law or faith in Jesus Christ. We were calling it achievement salvation or grace salvation. Our work salvation or Jesus' work salvation. That's the contrast going on in verse 16. So it's huge. So then he moves into, as he tackles the heart of the message of the book, all packed into that one verse, then he moves on to, but is this Galatian gospel that I'm teaching, is it cheap grace? Is it? Is it, look, God forgives, it's his job, so pass the porn, please. Is Jesus a promoter of sin? So that's when we moved into 17 through 21. So our zeroing in has been dealing with that question, 17 through 21. Now Paul answers this charge against his Galatian gospel in 17 through 21. And here's one of the incredible lessons we get out of this. We haven't zeroed in on this as much, but it's, it's something that's vitally important. It's this. If you preach the Galatian gospel, you will be accused of cheap grace. That's an important lesson. So you got to ask yourself, have you ever been accused of cheap grace? If you, Christian, have never been accused of cheap grace, that should be a warning flag for you. That should be a red flag. Okay? Now, we zeroed in on that two weeks ago. There's another lesson that we looked at last week, and it goes like this. Look at verse 18. He makes it real clear in verse 18. Here's the lesson here. The people who tend to throw around the accusation of cheap grace, nine times out of ten, those of us that do this, and we're all lumped in this together, the reason why we do this is primarily because we're seeking to justify our own existence by our own performance. We're trying to be our own savior through our good stuff. That's what he's telling us in verse 18. He's telling, what he does, he turns the table on his accusers and says, listen, the reason why you're accusing me of cheap grace is because you've got another thief going on in you of the gospel. You're seeking to save yourself by your own good stuff. That's verse 18. Now, today's our final look and our final message. Are you ready? As I am. Now, I pick names here, <laughs> Sarah, Sarah Eisenbarth. I love her. I've seen, she's, she grew up here, married a wonderful man, came back, and I just picked these names. So, Sarah, I'm not talking about you in this first illustration, okay? Great. Sarah has always been a hard worker. Not that Sarah, Sarah, whoever she is. Cosmic Sarah. Disciplined, dependable. Her parents praised her respectful obedience while she was growing up. Her friends joked about her being the nice girl and the good Christian girl, always in their group growing up. As the years went by, marriage and children were added, but also increased 
responsibilities, greater demands, bigger piles of stress came into her life. She found herself less and less in control and more and more uncertain about things. Okay? Then came the double crisis. One circumstantial and one personal. She couldn't manage her life anymore. She was thrown into bouts of anxiety and despondency, and she couldn't shake it. God for her was far away. Her husband and her friends couldn't reach her. They couldn't help her. All she felt was alone and in the midst of great danger. How does Galatians 2, 17 through 21 speak to her? Now, Jimmy is a Christian. Jimmy grew up in the church. Jimmy loves God, loves people, loves and is passionately want to be involved in what God is doing in the world. Wants to be a part, play a role, get in the game of God's redemptive work in the world. He loves that. He wants that. But Jimmy has a problem, and nobody knows about it but himself. It's his dark secret. It overwhelms him at times, this dark secret, with dark clouds of condemnation and flooding feelings of failure that just overwhelm him. He's tried everything to fix himself. He's read every book. He's tried every spiritual technique. He's tried every spiritual exercise, every spiritual discipline. He's cried out to God to fix him, and nothing works. Instead, there's still this powerful pull to do the sin again and again. How does Galatians 2, 17 through 21, speak to Jimmy? One more. Jessica is not a Christian. She has no desire to become one. From her perspective, Christians are scary people. She lives for finding a boyfriend. She's convinced that a love relationship makes her alive. And so her plan is to have many boyfriends and eventually trade the boyfriends in for the husband, for Mr. Wright. Now her plan is probably around 30 to find Mr. Wright. And if it's a wealthy Mr. Wright, whew! She's good to go. How does Galatians 2, 17 through 21 speak to Jessica? All right. Galatians 2, did you see it in 17 through 21 when we read it? Did you see the plot twist in that passage? It's a phenomenal plot twist. Everyone know what a plot twist is? It's like having your best friend be a part of going after terrorists, and that person being a double agent. That's a plot twist. Right? You're moving along in the narrative storyline, and then, oops, something happens and knocks you off course of the storyline. Plot twists. In this passage, you're cruising along, and there's a oops in this passage, a plot twist. Did you see it? William Cooper was a dear saint from the past. His pastor, his pastor was John Newton, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, and who was also William Wilberforce's pastor who stopped the slave trade, significant in England. But Cooper wrote poetry, he wrote hymns, but he struggled with debilitating depression his whole life. He did not have a happy ending. In 1800, 
On his deathbed, he told his doctor, Dr. Lubbock, on his deathbed, I feel unutterable despair. Piper, in a study of Cooper, said this, mental health is, in a great measure, the gift of self-forgetfulness. The plot twist is found in verses 19 through 20. I and me, in those two simple verses, is used nine times. This, these two verses are the most self-centered verses in all the Bible. You ready? Let's look at them together just so we see it. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's the plot twist. In a passage that's all about self, it's really all about forgetting yourself. In the most self-centered passage, passages in the Bible, it's really about self-forgetting. In other words, it's all about me, but it's not about me. Do you see that? There's the twist. How? How does that happen? This is the point of the passage. This is the point for today. Here's how. The gospel tells you, brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, the gospel tells you you're already dead You're already dead. This means you can stop worrying and thinking about yourself. You're already dead. This means you can live your life fearless and courageous like you have nothing to lose because you're already dead. Oh, man. Man. Let's look at verse 19. Let's plow into this text a little bit. Do you see it? For through the law, died to the law. Paul is saying to the Christian, the Christian is born dead to the law. You're already dead to the law, the, Paul is saying to the Christian. You don't have to worry about yourself. You don't have to think about yourself anymore. You're already dead to the law. You're a dead man walking. Here's the point. What does this mean? If he's saying you've died to the law, what does it mean? Well, let's look what it would mean if you were alive to the law. Let's say what the text would say in other places in Galatians. We're going to see Paul says you're under the law. To be alive to the law is to be under the law. So what would it look like if that was the case? Here's what it would look like. If you were under the law or alive to the law, you would be under the law's driving demand to be perfect in everything about you. In order to get God. In order to get his blessings. In order to have cosmic acceptance and happiness, you would have to be unutterably perfect. So if you're under that, you'd watch yourself very closely every day, every second, every minute of the day. Did I just sin? How was the tone of my, was I being sarcastic? Oh, I wonder if I hurt that person. And then you talk to yourself all day and you evaluate your performance all day. 
You think about yourself constantly. You compare yourself to others habitually. And your world gets reduced to how you're doing. You're alive to the law. You're under the law. But there's another component here that's just just as debilitating. Not only must you meet the law's driving demands for perfection, but the law has a terrifying power to it. And this is its power. The law has a lash of condemnation that strikes every one of your failures every time you fail. Every failure to love, the lash of condemnation strikes out and nails you. Every time you return insult for insult, the lash of condemnation strikes out and strikes you. Every time you slip into self-indulgence, and that just means normal, everyday desires that grow and dominate and take over to which they promise life to you, and you give into these like lust, you give into these like greed, you give into these like love of money, you give into these like pursuing security here, you give into these things, and every time you do that, the lash, the failure, the demands of the law strike out with the cosmic lash whip of condemnation. And nails you at the deepest part of your soul. That's being alive to the law. And the gospel says the Christian's not alive to the law. The Christian says, the Bible, the gospel says to the Christian, you're already dead. You're dead to the law. You don't have to. Worry about yourself and think about yourself anymore. You can forget yourself. That's phenomenal. Now, how can it say that? I mean, how can the gospel say that to you? Look in verse 19. Here's the answer, because through the law, don't miss that. Through the law, I died to the law, Paul is saying. Do you see that? Yes, he's died to the law. The Christian is dead to the law. The Christian's already dead. But how did he get dead? The passage is saying, through the law, you die to the law. Here's what this means. Someone else lived under the law for you. Someone else put themselves under the law for you so that you die to the law and live to another. What this means is that the law's driving demands to be perfect in order to get God to get blessing in life. In order to have cosmic acceptance and happiness, the law's driving demands to be perfect was kept by someone else. This also means that the law's terrorizing power to lash out at your soul with condemnation for every failure was poured out on someone else through the law positive requirements and penal punishments, I died to the law because someone else went under the law. Do you see that? Unbelievable stuff. It's incredible stuff. So someone else lived the law for you, so you're dead to the law. You don't have to worry and think about yourself anymore. Do you see that? You're set free from the law. You're set free from its driving demandingness and you're set free from its terrorizing condemning power when you fail it by someone else. 
Now, let's look at verse 20. It's the same point, just looked at from a different angle. Same point in 19. Notice there's no transition. There's no conjunction. There's no linking. It's just exploding the idea from a different angle. For through the law, I died to the law. Here we go. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then it moves on to that great phrase that we looked at last week. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, here's the plot twist here. The plot twist in verse 20 is this. What else was nailed to the cross? Now, all of us know Jesus was nailed to the cross. I mean, we all get that. Everyone gets that. The cross is a universal symbol of Christianity. The Buddhist knows that. The Hare Krishna knows that. The Muslim knows that. Any Joe Stromo off the street, if you were to interview them, what's the universal symbol of Christianity? He probably has never set foot in a church, but he's got one around his neck. Everyone knows that Jesus hung on the cross. Then some of us know that there was a placard hung on the cross that said King of the Jews, right? So that was hung on the cross. And that King of the Jews was the jeer of the skeptic. That king of the Jews was the horror of the religious person. No, he can't be. God forbid, he really is. And that placard, king of the Jews, is the glory of you and me. Right? But there was something else that was hung on the cross. And we're told in Colossians, a certificate of debt was hung on the cross. The debt of sin was hung on the cross. And this certificate of debt is what we just looked at in verse 19. The law is a, the greatest accountant in the world. And the law, and going through the accounting books, makes strikes every time there's failure to the law for every single human that walks on the face of the earth. That certificate of all the strikes of failure to keep the law, not just an external conformity, but an internal heart conformity in the passions and the desires of your heart and the deepest trusts and hopes of your heart. All failure there is marked as a certificate of debt that demands payment. That certificate of debt hung on the cross. What else hung on the cross? The Christian hung on the cross. That's the plot twist. The Christian hung on the cross. That means you're already dead. That means you died on the cross. You have nothing to lose. Here's what this means. What does it mean to have nothing to lose? It means this. By dying on the cross with Christ, all the bad stuff is lost to you. And one way you could look at what verse 19 talks about, the law's driving demands for perfection and the law's punishing, terrorizing power for imperfection. You die to that stuff. Another way of saying it is sin, sin demands a death debt. Sin's payment is cosmic condemnation, cosmic rejection, con cosmic driven out of God's presence. 
cosmic banishment and abandonment and death. And that stuff's gone. Also, sin's universal reign and rule over your life, gone. You're no longer in the realm or the kingdom of the power of sin. You're now in a different kingdom. So that bad stuff is gone. And then there's one other aspect that's kind of really spooky and we don't like talking about it today. But there's a spooky world out there and it's called the kingdom of darkness. And when we're, when we're not a Christian, we are under the reign and the rule of that kingdom. That's gone. So being dead in Christ or dying in the cross, you died to all that bad stuff. And here's the, here's the good part. You gain a lot of good stuff. And what do you gain? You gain Christ. See that? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ in me. That means you have gained the resurrected life of Christ. So that means right now you have nothing to lose because you have gained everything in Christ and you can't lose him because he rose from the dead and is winning right now, reigning right now, ruling right now. So you can forget yourself. You now live in the light and the life of the love and acceptance of the most phenomenal being in the universe. Infinitely worthy, infinitely glory. And he loves you and accepts you in his son. So you're free. You're accepted. You're justified in his sight. So you can live like you have nothing to lose. You know what that means? You can live passionately because you have nothing to lose. You got everything. You're dead to the bad stuff. You're alive to the good stuff. You've got Christ. You can live passionately. You can live purposely. With real purpose, real meaning. You can enter in where angels fear to tread. You can move into situations where people will not go into. You can move into areas of your life that he's going to be working on and showing you with through trials, through tribulations, through other people. But you can move in that direction because you have nothing to lose. You can love people relentlessly because you have nothing to lose. You can accept and affirm people constantly because you have nothing to lose. You can let goods and kindred go because you have nothing to lose. Ultimately. Because it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. You can walk away with a gun in your face and say, I'm already dead. I don't have anything to lose. Man. So how does Galatians 2, 17 through 21 speak to Sarah? All right, let's go back to our three people. How does this passage speak to them? This is how we're going to end. 
Well, Sarah's already dead. She's a believer, so she's already dead. This means she died to the law. She died to the demand. She died to the terror of the law. So she doesn't have to worry and think about herself anymore. So imagine this. She's loved and accepted in Christ. She's not loved and accepted by trying to be good. By trying to be perfect. She's not loved and accepted in her control. She's not loved and accepted in her self-mastery. She's not loved and accepted in trying to be perfect. She's loved and accepted in radical grace alone in Jesus Christ. She's free. She's loved. She's accepted. She starts here, and now she steps out and says, okay, how do I live life? I'm free. How do I live life? So now, when demands and responsibilities and stress increase, when crisis comes, circumstantially or personally or relationally, when this stuff comes, because it will come, now she can rest in the law-keeping of another and the law-punishment of another. She's loved and accepted in Christ. She's justified. So she's safe. She's She's secure. She's okay. Even though she's uncertain, even though she's not in control, even though there are things and movements in the world that are much bigger than she is, even though there are things in her life that she just is not in control of, even though there are areas and relationships and feelings and thoughts that she goes through in her life, yep, she's okay. Because she's not justified by being in control by self-mastery, by being good. Now, how does Galatians 2, 17 through 21 speak to Jimmy? Well, it speaks to Jimmy but the same way. He's already dead. <laughs> she's already dead, but what she needs to realize is she's dead to the law. What Jimmy needs to realize is that he died. He died on the cross. And so what this means is that Jimmy has nothing to lose. The bad stuff is gone. The good stuff has come. He has Christ. This means he is loved, accepted, and no longer under the reign and the rule of sin's bondage and control and rule in his life. So this is what this means. He can take his justification in Christ and bring it to that secret sin. And if he takes his justification in Christ and brings it to that secret sin, guess what happens to that secret sin? It loses its power. The power of the secret sin is its promise to give him love, acceptance, meaning, and happiness. That's the power of the secret sin. That's the enslavement of the secret sin. That can't be removed It has to be replaced by the one who does love him, does accept him, has set him free. So what he's looking for is a real savior. He's had a false savior, and it's killing him. And now that he knows that he's dead, He's alive to a true Savior, one that will not punish him, but will forgive him when he blows it. One that loves him and accepts him based on his righteousness.
What about Jessica? Last one. Jessica, well, we know Jessica's gospel is boys. Her savior is a love relationship. Boys and eventually a husband, right? That's what's going to make her alive. Now, if she has a love relationship, she believes that she'll be somebody. She believes that she'll be loved and accepted. She believes that she'll be justified. She'll be a justified person if she's in her love relationship. But a love relationship is a bad savior. A love relationship will not love her, will not accept her, will not forgive her, will not justify her. In fact, when she blows it with the boys, blows it with the husband, who she is starts being utterly devastated at the core of her being. She's losing herself. She's losing her love. She's losing her acceptance. She loses her justification in life. So a love relationship's a bad savior. So what she needs to see is Jesus is a good savior. And Jesus proved that he was a good savior, not by punishing her and demanding from her, but by, as the text says, he gave himself for me. This savior gives doesn't demand, gives, even gives what he demands. If he demands obedience, guess what? He gives the obedience to obey him. Demands faith, he gives the faith to trust him. This Savior dies on the cross for all her false hopes and trusts and substitute saviors so she can be forgiven. And this savior lives a perfect life so that she can be loved and accepted truly, not in her love relationships. So here's what we got. Here's the point. We've zeroed in three times in this passage. Hopefully, Hopefully you have come to see the wealth of the riches that are found in these powerful five verses. The gospel says to all who trust Jesus, you're already dead. You can stop worrying and thinking about yourself. You can, you can live your life like you don't have to fear losing anything. So the gospel, this is what the gospel does. The gospel makes, you know what the gospel makes? Self-forgetting people. That's what the gospel makes. It makes people that do not think about themselves. It makes people that are not running through their minds and their hearts all day about themselves. The gospel creates self-forgetting people. So you can, brothers and sisters, forget yourself and get on with living. Amen. Amen.